At that time, we had no idea. We thought that it could be a weird type of attack, something external for sure, since it affected multiple devices. Like, just, just close the business. Just, just, just close. Exactly. It. Like nobody enters this location, this location for now. It's like Wi-Fi inside the cable. <laughs> the customer and I decided to plan some type of um, nuclear approach, if you see what I mean. Basically, organize an on-site activity and having people try to trigger the crash by being there and do the thing that they were doing before. I, I could hear something like, a spike! I see a spike uh, from the technician on site. service provider is facing random outages in multiple locations affecting thousands of end users and the root cause was totally unexpected so tristan tell us what story do you have for us today what if i told you that you have something in your pocket that has unexpected power my wallet my car keys not really Today, this is the story of a cable service provider, so the ones that provide you internet and TV through coax cable at home, uh, which has faced multiple unexpected outages. The story started like this. One day, a customer called us uh, saying, hmm, we are having a line card crash. Wait, what's a line card exactly? A line card is a module that fits into what we call a chassis. In this case, the line card provides service to several thousand end customers like you and me at home through the coax cable that enters your house. And the crash, it's when that module uh, inside the device unexpectedly restarts. And here is where the investigation started. The, the story that I will tell you will cover the investigation that lasted over several days. Usually when a crash happens, uh, the device generates what we call a core file, which gives us information about what the crash is about. In this case, the decode was very vague, um, just telling us that a special chip misbehaved and became unresponsive. The problem thing is that those crashes kept happening several times per day. And you might think, hmm, this must be a faulty component, right? So let's replace it. Right. So usually when, when we have some crash like this, uh, could be a software issue. But here, if you're thinking, could, could be a, an RMA, right? Could be just replacing the hardware could do the trick as well. That was not that easy, unfortunately. So that's... The thing that led us to think that was not a simple hardware problem was that we noticed an identical crash on a different card. But still on the same device, right? Well, initially, yes, on the same device. But then we noticed after further investigation that those crashes uh, were also happening on separate devices, in initially collocated in the same building. So you mean like, like a virus, like it's spreading through, through devices progressively? Well, yes, and funnily enough, this story happened right during COVID. So this was well in the minds of everyone there. And the pressure was really to get the vaccine as soon as possible because those crashes started to feel annoying. 
So we had to find the cause of those as soon as possible. It was clear it was not just a one-time thing. And it was also impacting a lot of subscribers. So what could it be? A network attack? Just, just someone malicious doing something bad? At that time, we had no idea. We thought that it could be a weird type of attack. Something external for sure, since it affected multiple devices. We were scratching our heads what it could be. Uh, and we decided, okay, let's start by uh, correlating the events together. Let's start by listing when all those events happened. And we found some very interesting events. Fact number one, these events only happened Monday to Friday during usual business hours. Nothing happened during the night, nothing happened during weekends. And also there was a public holiday in the mix and Nothing happened on that public holiday. Fact number two, in one head end, one location, we had two side-by-side -side devices um, and on each of them, one of the cards crashed at the same time, the exact same time. We're talking seconds between the crashes. So if, if, if I'm looking at it correctly, uh, it cannot be the end users at home causing something, right? It cannot be a script kitty at home doing some attack, nothing like that. It has to be with the business, people there at that service provider. Or, or something there at the service provider during business hours, at least. Yeah, it had to be. It had to be something like that. To, to confirm this, we looked at the badging logs, so the one from the door when you enter the building. Uh, we also looked at surveillance cameras inside the data center, we called the, the head end. And it turned out that every time a crash was observed, there was some type of human activity around the device. So it was really thickening the plot. So we interviewed the people that were on site at the time of those events, trying to understand what actions were done uh, when the crashes were encountered. From the security camera, you could not really see what the people were doing. So we, we asked them what was happening, and they told us the following. Some technicians were laying new fibers for uh, future work, and some others were just doing routine maintenance work. But nothing that had a direct relation with the devices on which the crash were observed. We also found that some on-site activity happened and did not cause any crash. So for those, it was actually working fine. No, nothing happened. So you're saying it cannot be the housekeeper unplugging some routers to plug the vacuum cleaner, right, in this case? Yeah, not this time. That's a story for a different uh, episode. We thought that it could have been related to grounding, you know, um, from the electrical system or shielding or some type of uh, static electricity. One way or the other, the presence of human would disturb uh, the environment and lead to crash. For example, if you have a floating ground, that could have been a safety hazard. And if it turned out to be true, the customer had to get that checked. So we we sent, uh, or the customer sent somebody on site to verify that, and, and that was very fine. No problem there at all. It was good. But how long is, is this all taking? Because it's not something that's happening over a WebEx over three hours, right? No, indeed, that was taking several days. So we were working, I would say, uh, from from as soon as we were logging in in the morning until late in the evening, trying to figure out what happened. So it was taking really a lot of time. But since we found out earlier that uh, this seemed to be related to human activity, we put a temporary ban inside the head end. So like, just, just close the business. Just, just, just close. Exactly. It. Like nobody enters this location, these locations for now, and. Surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, actually, no crashes uh, 
happen anymore. It was all fine. Of course, this is not a, a forever solution. This is merely a, a last resort mitigation technique. The one thing you need to know about cable RF networks is that they are using RF frequencies to send and receive data to the cable modem, to the subscribers. So you mean it's like Wi-Fi, but inside a cable? It's like Wi-Fi inside a cable. <laughs> it's a bit like when you listen to FM radio in the car. If you want to tune to a specific channel, you put in uh, its frequency. And the same is true for cable internet access. Each downstream channel has its own frequency, uh, and each uh, upstream channel has its own frequency as well. So at this point, our theory was that something was injecting a signal onto the RF network, perhaps due to a bad connection somewhere, um, or vibration caused by human around that would make two cables touch themselves where they should not, something like that. We actually had no idea. So you're thinking about unintentional, right? You're, you're not thinking about someone injecting, injecting, sending waves over the air and then those waves get into the cable maliciously, right? That, that's a bit far-fetched. Yeah, exactly. We didn't think it was malicious. We thought that it was maybe an accident or something that was not supposed to happen. But, but what did you do? Because now the issue is not visible anymore. Yeah, indeed. That was a bit of a problem. So this is when the customer and I decided to plan some type of um, nuclear approach, if you see what I mean. Basically, organize an on-site activity and having people try to trigger the crash by being there and do the thing that they were doing before. Uh, which did trigger the crash, and have some equipment, such as a spectrum analyzer, to measure what's happening on the RF network. So after saying no one can enter the, the, the premises, now it's like, everyone, please come to the premises and do, we don't know what, but do whatever you were you were doing, right? Yeah, exactly. We, we had to take uh, a strong action uh, to make this problem get resolved. We had to do that. The, the spectrum analyzer is the same for, for wireless. It just displays the RF frequencies, the RF activity in the neighborhood, right? Precisely. So this device has a cable on one end that you plug onto the existing RF network and a screen on the other that shows what signal and what power is received for each frequency. So you would see things like 200 megahertz, uh, 10 dB of signal, uh, 300 megahertz, 5 dB of signal, and you would really see... Uh, a spectrum view of, of the signal. So it's really visualizing the signal. But signal comes and goes. That spectrum analyzer has a very unique feature that's called the max hold feature, which as the name says, it basically keeps the highest point that it has seen. So even if the signal goes away, the line remains at the top uh, of, of where it was. So that gives us a good indication uh, that the signal is was there at some point, but is no longer there. So you're waiting to see if if there's RF noise coming. It's it's like it's like Wi-Fi, right? You but in Wi-Fi the noise is is caused by other Wi-Fi devices or non-Wi-Fi device, Bluetooth or whatever. So here you're waiting for some RF noise, but you don't know the source, and you just want to see it appear on on the spectrum, right? Yeah, precisely. So on any RF installation, there will be some RF background noise, a bit like the static that you hear when you tune on a. FM radio channel that has no signal. But usually the RF noise, background noise, is kept low and uh, the signal is easy to filter and should not really affect us. But here we were thinking, what if the noise is stronger than we thought? Like much, much stronger. What you need to know about K 
cable network is that inside the head end, there are a lot of equipment, a lot of them, including a lot of amplifiers. And as the name says, an amplifier amplifies the signal, but it also amplifies the noise. So even if you would have a small noise inside the head end, it could be amplified and become a very strong noise. That day, or that night, should I say, um, where the maintenance or the nuclear maintenance was there, um, there were a lot of people on site and we had the spectrum analyzer plugged in just for us to measure. We did some baseline checks and the customer did a lot of them. All the RF signaling looked good. All the cables were correctly plugged. Um, the noise was minimal and nothing out of the ordinary was seen. So everything was okay so far. Until a few minutes later. So I was remotely connected to the devices and I was looking for signs of crash. So far, so good until boom, a crash. A crash happened. I could see the log saying line card X went offline. Boom. The only time you were happy to see a crash, right? <laughs> exactly. I was happy to see that because I knew we were right on everything so far. First thing I ask is, what did you do? What, what do you see on the RF meter? I, I could hear something like a spike. I see a spike. Uh, from the technician on site. And I ask, okay, a spike, where? What frequency? We could see the RF spike right in the middle of the control channel. A thing that you need to know on, on cable network is that there are some channels for data and some channels for control. The spike, so the noise, source of noise, was right at the middle of the control channel. And of course, if you lose a control channel, uh, that's not good. <laughs> Losing data channel, you might have a bit of packet loss. That's fine, but okay. Um, but losing the control channel is really a big problem. Cool. So we had the spike. And then I ask, what did you do to trigger that spike? And one of the on-site colleagues told me, we just sent a text message with our phone. I know what the text message was. was, was Honey, I'm going to be late home today because the Cisco guy is waiting for a crash and nothing's happening. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. But we also had the smoking gun. The phone. So it looks like the signal from the phone was overlapping with the control signal from the cable modems in this area. That phone, by sending a text message, killed the RF signal from those cable modems. And since you have two signals overlapping with each other, it's basically the same as when you have two persons speaking uh, with, uh, over each other. You can't understand anything. I'm glad it was 4G and not Wi-Fi, by the way, but okay. So the, the meter was connected to the coax cable, right? It, it's, it was not like measuring over the air. You were connecting to the cable. So how come a wireless device through LTE is, is impacting it? Well, it's an excellent question. But basically, the RF signal in the air and in the cable should be mostly isolated from one another, unless there are some cable acting as antenna. For example, if you have a cable that is connected on one end, but not on the other, it will be acting as antenna. And that will pretty much bridge the signal from the air onto the coax network. And by doing some more research, we could find several cables that were what we call open cable. So connected on one end, but nothing on the other. Okay, but there's also a matter of frequencies, right? Because LT is a very specific frequency. And I guess you use also a specific frequency range on your cable. So it, it has to match as well? Yes and no. Since I, I mentioned before, the signal in the air and on the cable should be mostly 
isolated from one another. But DLT bands and the cable RF bands have some overlap. And like I said, this should not be a problem if you have good isolation between one another. But here, apparently, we did not have that isolation. And the fact that um, the frequencies from LTEs were overlapping with the one of our control channel was really the key to cause a big problem in the network. What we found is by interviewing the technicians, um, they had mobile phone from different mobile providers. Each of those uh, mobile providers were using slightly different frequencies. And only one mobile provider had the overlap with us. The other mobile providers did not. And there's one more thing. The head end, so the data center, if you want, is located in the basement, which means that the LTE signal was very poor. That has another side effect. That means that if your phone needs to reach the mobile station, it needs to send at max power, which means that the signal that the phone will send will be very high power signal. And that very high power signal is picked up by these open cables, which then is amplified even further with the amplifiers that I mentioned before, and then send to thousands and thousands of cable modems on the field in one go. So we had it. Unexpected overlapping frequencies were causing massive outages and crashes. So we put another workaround in place because we had a smoking gun. So we moved the control channel frequency outside of the LTE band, and that helped preventing the crashes. Okay, could be a basic question, but why a crash, basically? Because you have RF interference, yes, but why is it causing a crash? Should it? A crash is never expected. It turns out to be a side effect of those interferences. When the mobile phone was injecting a signal, it was causing several thousands of cable modem to report to our device hey, it looks like I'm having a problem with the control channel. That's what we called an RF impairment. And when thousands of devices do that at the same time, it basically overwhelmed the RF chip that was reporting to crash. That RF chip was not expecting to receive thousands and thousands of impairment being at the same time. Usually an impairment, a real impairment in real life, affects a small number of subscribers, a few hundreds. But here it was really thousands of them at the same time. So the trigger is unexpected. Thousands of, of end users complaining at the same time because of the interference. But also the crash is still not supposed to happen, even in that case, right? That's correct. So the crash, any crash, it's never really expected, whatever is the cause. I had a teacher at, um, at school, at computing uh, classes, that was always telling me, I should be able to sit on a keyboard and your application should not crash. It should be resilient to any input. Sounds like a deaf tester in Cisco. They do that as well. <laughs> Pretty much. And that statement really stick with me to this day. So that crash, whatever is the cause, should not be happening. So now we have a clear trigger. So I went to my Cisco CX labs and I went with the mission of trying to reproduce the situation. The Cisco lab is an amazing tool. We use it really every day. It's really powerful to understand where the issue come from, how to fix them, test a fix before we deploy it to the customer. But how do you even start to reproduce something like this? Because you, here it was a service provider with a thousand devices, you know. Where did you start? Yeah, indeed. And as you will hear, I encountered a few hurdles. It was not easy to start. First, 
I tried innocently by using my own mobile phone as a signal source um, near the, the device configured like the customer. But where I am, my uh, Cisco CX lab, the mobile provider that I'm using does not use the same frequencies that were overlapping with the cable spectrum at the customer. So in my case, I could not cause, I could not create an overlap. That was problem number one. So I was thinking, okay, um, what if I use an RF signal generator? And what if I configured it to send the RF signal at the exact same frequency as what we saw at the customer? I did that, but then I got into hurdle number two. Like I said, the, the CX Lab is an amazing tool, but as amazing as it is, we don't have 20,000 cable modems. We have a few hundreds, but not thousands. And I faced the hurdle that um, the scale in the lab is nowhere large enough for me to reproduce the issue. I could see the impairment. I could see the modems reporting, my channel is down, please help me. But it was nowhere near enough to cause the lockup on the chip. So I was a bit desperate, since I know that the lab reproduction was really the key to get the issue resolved. So how can I test the fix if I cannot trigger the issue in the lab? Uh, how can I be sure that it will work? And obviously, even if I have a fix, I cannot really tell the customer, look, it's not tested, but just go for it in production and hope for the best, right? So to find some inspiration, I was reading through the iOS code at the place around the crash. And I was also discussing with the iOS developers and we got an idea. An idea that might not require us to have thousands of cable modem to reproduce the problem after. So we know that we can't create real RF impairment events with cable modems due to the small scale that we have. But we can create fake RF impairment events from the code. So I asked our developer to write a special function that will obviously not make it to production code, but that function, I would be able to call it as many times as I want, like a thousand times, like 10,000 times, 20,000 times, until the card crash. And that function would just pretend that a lot of modem reported RF impairment. And bingo. A few minutes after receiving the special image, I was able to reproduce the problem. Because of this lab reproduction, we could find that the chip handling large amount of RF impairment events was really suboptimal. Uh, this is what we call a bug, right? And our developers basically wrote a fix that optimized the way that the chip handles large amount of events. Because I had the lab repro available, I could just test the fix in my lab and confirm that, yeah, the chip doesn't crash anymore. It's handling it correctly and everybody's happy so far. Wow. Okay. So th there were actually many triggers, if I can think about it. Uh, there was the fact they were loose cables with loose, loose ends. They acted as antennas. There was the fact that the head end was in a basement. So transmit power on the phones was uh, more powerful. And the fact that the service provider for certain uh, mobile phone there at that location were right in the wrong frequency, if I can say so, right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's, what, it's really what we call the Swiss cheese analogy. When the 
holes of the Swiss cheese align, and then you can see the light through this. And this is also why we have never seen that in other places, because those combinations were not there anywhere else. And if, and if I can ask you, what was the key into going in the right direction? Because uh, it's too easy to just think about it as a software issue. Uh, you know, you, you could have been going in circles for month and month. To me, it seems like the, the key was really spotting this only happens during business hours. So it must be a physical event. That was the turning point in, in my... Yeah, exactly. And first, we thought, we thought it as a joke. We were like, haha, the bug doesn't happen, uh, happen during the night. Um, but then we took it seriously. We looked like, no, it really never happens during the night. That must be something, that must be a key. And looking further, we could really start aligning the events, correlating them. Uh, and then once we got the trigger, we could really move on and find a, a proper cause and a proper solution for it. Okay. That, that was one hell of a story. Tristan, before you leave, I have a, a personal question here. I, I really want to use the, the end of the episodes to have some debunking, some, some questions that are, that are in our minds and, and to have the expert uh, clear them up. I have a question about cable service providers. I'm from the days, uh, not mentioning specific years, where, where broadband internet was the cool new thing. Uh, we had 56K modem and even 33K before and even less before that, but uh, broadband was a thing. And we had DSL starting at uh, 128 kilobit per second and then each year going up and up. And there was the cable providers as well. Coax Cable was also starting around the same time. And they were offering similar speeds, more or less. Um, but I always heard people, nerds, the techies back then saying, yeah, the, the phone lines are more powerful. There was no fiber, of course, back then. Phone lines are more powerful because it's a kind of private cable. It's only you uh, on that line until the what is called the DSLAM for DSL, uh, while the coax cable is a shared line. So even, you know, you can improve it, but it's an old technology. It, it's never going to get there. But these days I can see coax cable, at, at least in my area, it goes up to 400 megabits. They're talking now advertising the rollout of one gigabit cable. And I even hear the, the DOCSIS protocol, which is what makes the cable run, uh, that is promising even more than that. So how come? Is there an end to this? Uh, is is there no fiber needed for cable? Like, how, how does this go? Well, it's it's a very cool question actually, and and you're right. Um, cable has uh, is a shared media, so you are sharing the bandwidth with your, with your neighbor, a bit like in Wi-Fi, I suppose. Um, but the technology um, is making a lot of progress in a couple of ways. So first of all, we are using what we call modulation. So basically, the amount of data that you can put. Um, per second on a, on, on a cable uh, is, in, is constantly increasing. And not just that, but we are also widening the range of frequencies that we can use. Um, first of all, you might remember the old analog TV uh, signal that was taking a lot of space on the spectrum. The analog TV is being replaced by digital TV, which is much, um, much more efficient in, in the spectrum use. It's much smaller. So we can reuse that spectrum for additional channels. Um, so that plus um, increased modulation means that gigabit speed on DOCSIS are easy. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a no-brainer if you have an existing cable infrastructure. You can easily do gigabit. And the future of DOCSIS, so the protocol, as you said, that, that allows cable modem to work, supports multi-gigabit speed easily and up to 10 gig speeds. And best of this, 
even bidirectional, so upstream and downstream gigabit speeds will be easy in the future. Don't get me wrong, there will be physical limits eventually, but we still have a lot of room to play. And this is really where, uh, and this is really where the, the future is. So we are expanding the spectrum. Many of our customers are moving to multi-gig multi -gig speed. Um, so far, so good. Wow, okay. Well, thank you for coming, telling your story. And I look forward to be grilling other guests about their stories along with you. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. It was awesome. Next time on Cisco Tech Stories. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cisco Tech Stories podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback, so reach out to us on Twitter at Cisco Tech Stories. Our music is produced by our multi-talented Chris van der Kruijs.